reading is from Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. It can be found on page 1060 of the Church Bible. Luke 23:32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to have a look at... um the last person that Jesus spoke to before he died, and we'll realise why Jesus had to die, and we'll see why this particular criminal had what uh, Christians in the what, uh, 17th century would have called a good death. You want to have a good death. So, you see, our biggest problem is also God's biggest problem. How can we be forgiven? For God, the problem is because he is the judge of the entire universe. And he must uphold justice, because if you'd had the dirty done on you, you're going to say to him, Oi, why don't you do something about that injustice if you're God? On the other hand, for us, we know that we can't gain access to God's presence, because... If you think of uh, immorality as being pollution, then God cannot allow himself to be contaminated by anything that would adversely, as a variance with his character, with his being. And so we would be shut out. We can't get into his presence. We can't get into heaven. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to realise that forgiveness is your biggest problem. Vaughan Roberts, in his book Turning Point, Vaughan actually is, um, I know he's the vicar of a church in Oxford, he's actually a Basingstoke boy, believe it or not. And um, if you've never read this book, um, do. I'll give you a copy for nothing if I can find where the boxes are. But um, he quotes a couple of um, once well-known humanists. The first, Margarita Lasky, once said on television in a discussion, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. 
I have no one to forgive me. Kingsley Amis, more recently, a novelist, said much the same thing shortly before he died. One of the great things about organised religion is that you can be forgiven your sins. And then he paused for a long time and bowed his head. I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There's nobody to forgive them. But of course there is. There is Jesus. His death makes forgiveness possible for anyone, no matter how badly they've lived. And then as I was uh, reading this, I noticed um, Vaughan making a reference to David Watson. He'd have to be about my age to remember David Watson. He died rather prematurely, but he used to be a very um, gifted evangelist among universities throughout the 1970s. And um, I was at university in the mid-70s. I remember we had a mission and uh, it attracted about 1,200 students for eight nights in a row and 160-odd professed faith. And it's not about numbers, it's about individuals. And he recounts the story of one particular girl on one particular evening. He'd noticed the girl enter the room alone and stand at the back. There was something about her that drew his attention and he asked the chairman of the meeting, you know, quietly I'm sure, about, um, about her. And the chairman was amazed to see her there because she was perhaps one of the most notorious uh, students in his college. She'd had the reputation of being someone who would do anything, drink anything, smoke anything, sleep with anyone. Throughout the talk, she continued to smoke and look angry. At the end, David invited anyone who wanted to accept Christ's forgiveness to pray a prayer with him afterwards. To his surprise, the girl was one of a bunch of students who came forward and said she wanted to talk and they arranged to meet the next day. But he hardly recognised her when she came through the door of the cafe they were going to meet in. The scrowl of the previous evening had completely disappeared. David began by saying, I gather you have a reputation for being the wildest student in the whole university. She replied, it's true, there was nothing that I wouldn't do. But, she continued, all along, I felt as guilty as hell. And then a broad smile came across her face and she said, but now I've been forgiven and it's marvellous. She described how she'd gone back to her room the previous evening after hearing that Christ had died for her. And she just cried for hours, tears of joy. She could hardly believe that someone would love her so much. The death of Christ meant life for her. Instead of being cut off from God and facing his anger, she now knew that she had been welcomed by him into his family, totally accepted and forgiven. And the same is true for all of those who recognise their need before God and ask for his mercy because of what he's done. And the guy we're looking at tonight is perhaps the first one to have done so. This guy is thief on the cross. Well, just to get the context, 
I mean, there are various people who uh, really could be blamed for putting Christ on the cross. There is, of course, Pilate, the Roman procurator. He just took the line of least resistance to placate the Jewish leaders and to ensure an easy life and the retention of his position. Then there are the religious leaders for whom Jesus was clearly a rival. He was a political rival to their comfortable accommodation with the Romans. And of course he was a religious rival as his system of grace challenged their system of works. He was offering salvation freely, whereas they said you've got to follow a whole bucket load of rules of which they were very good at adding to. The Roman soldiers are obviously partly to blame, but you, it's hard to blame the, the foot soldiers. They just had to do it or they'd forfeit their own life. Then there's Judas and Rentamob, both of whom uh, betrayed Jesus and stirred up the crowd for money. And then there were some who were disappointed that Jesus wasn't actually a political revolutionary. They'd preferred Barabbas and they asked for him to be released um, rather than Jesus. Barabbas was a convicted terrorist. Now to all of them, with their various reasons for doing him in, what does Jesus say, verse 34? Astonishingly, he says, whilst he's hanging there on the cross in excruciating pain, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Why was he so magnanimous? Well, if they'd known who he was, they wouldn't have wanted him done away with. But actually, he needed to be done away with, or there's no hope for any of us. They, of course, were blind to the reality, as are the other people who come to say things to Jesus as he's hanging there, dying on the cross. Three times Jesus is tempted to abort his mission. Now, of course, these people who say these things to him, they too do not understand what's going on. But nonetheless, their words were used to tempt Jesus to quit, to abort the mission. First, the religious leaders sneered at him, then the Roman soldiers mocked him, and finally there was the criminal who insulted him before we get to the condemned criminal who understood and was forgiven. So verse 35 we read, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. There's a reference there to the, at least to the three recorded occasions when Jesus raised someone from the dead and to others where he did supernatural signs, miracles where people who are chronically, for example, um, buckled and twisted from birth are instantly and publicly straightened out. People, understandably, were amazed. They'd never seen anything like it. But there is also a parallel meaning, for he can't actually do both. He can live, but not save them. Or he can save them but he will have to die. There is options, live or die. Save us or abandon us to our fate. Let me explain. On the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, 
all will be summoned to appear before God in his heavenly court. Now, when you arrive there, how will you plead? Guilty or not guilty? I don't know how you'll how you're plead because I can't read your mind and I probably don't see the full extent of your life. But you know yourself best. As you uh, do a quick review, what will it be? Lord Hailsham was once Lord Chancellor, head of the judiciary. He once said that on that day he would, quote, plead guilty and throw himself on the mercy of the court. His celebrated member of the judiciary made an honest assessment. Despite the great office of state, he was humble and he was prepared to meet his maker on his maker's terms. You see, it really is the only decision that you can possibly make. Because just think about it. One wrong thought, one wrong word, and one wrong act today. And what does that give you? That gives you three a day, or 21 a week, or over a thousand a year. Fancy turning up to God. And you've got at least 70 previous at the end of your three score year and 10. It's not impressive, is it? And you'd need to be pretty good to limit your record to that. So what does God do with those arriving at the gates of heaven when they are too morally polluted to be suitable for such a morally pure environment? He's got a problem, hasn't he? What action will he take? Well, the scriptures, both old and new, are pretty clear on that. There's no need to speculate. He will exclude those who are so polluted. The Bible calls that pollution sin and the exclusion is death. In this life, unless the pollution problem is resolved, spiritual death is what we experience. God is merely a distant awareness. He is a stranger to us. At the end of life, it will be our physical death. And at the end after that, there will be the court hearing and there is eternal death or the second death, exclusion forever. Fortunately, substitution is allowed. Someone can take our place. Our crimes can be punished. Justice can be satisfied. But where are we going to get an effective substitute from? They would need to be perfect, unblemished. No record of any offence listed against them. Now, of course, the problem is that no human being has existed to match the required standard. Only God is perfect. Well, there's the solution. God decides voluntarily to enter our world as a human being so that he can represent us. And as he's divine, he's perfect. He was able, he hadn't committed any sin, he was able to resist all temptation. 
even though he was human and subject to the same temptations as us. He was a perfect substitute. And that's what God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, decided to do long before they ever created the universe. And the Son willingly and voluntarily came among us to do just that. That was his dominant life's work. Just as you might say that William Wilberforce's dominant life work had been the defeat of slavery and the emancipation of slaves. So Christ's life's work was the abolition of death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. And the emancipation, the liberation of us who were kind of trapped in a dungeon of our own creation. Trapped in the dark, in a world of sin, enslaved by adverse forces of evil. He came to liberate us from that forever. So this perfect, unblemished, divine substitute volunteered to be a human being and take our place at this grand assize on the day of judgment. And he takes responsibility for our sins. He is condemned in our place. Sin is punished. The law has executed justice. Jesus has taken the rap for us. We are forgiven. We can be saved. Now in the sense that, uh, in that sense we're in the clear. We've been rescued from a fate worse than death, which is an eternal conscious existence away from heaven and God himself. A terrible and awful prospect, but it's not one that we have to experience the balls in our court as to how we respond to what Jesus has enabled God the Father to offer us. So can you see why it is that Jesus cannot both save himself and save us? The salvation of both are not possible. He has to decide and fortunately for us he opts to stay on the cross and die physically but also actually die spiritually for the first time in their existence, the eternal community of love is fractured when God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are separated from God the Son who is bearing our sins and suffering the punishment of exclusion on our behalf. On the cross, when the sky went black in the middle of the day, that was when Jesus experienced hell and separation from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in our place, so that we don't have to. So verse 36, we then have basically, it's, um, the, the, the challenge is, the temptation is repeated again, but this time from the soldiers who came up and mocked him and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, they are unaware how tempting those words are to him, because he could have aborted it even at that particular point. And then we have one of the criminals who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. He was issuing the final temptation, the third one to abort his mission, to come down and save himself 
but abandoned us to our faith if he did. Three times he resisted that temptation from three different sources. And three times he resolves to press on with this rescue mission. And now we hear what the other criminal said. He's the one that we can learn from. He says the right thing. He says, verse 14, to his fellow conspirator, Don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, here we have a classic deathbed conversion. Well, of course, cynics would always sneer at men on death row getting religion. Because, of course, they will think, oh, they're just trying to get their death sentence commuted to a life sentence. But it does genuinely happen. I've heard of it, I've read of it, and I've once encountered it. Some of... Uh, the Nazi leaders who were on trial for war crimes in Nuremberg at the end of the Second World War came to faith, not many, but some, through the work of Chaplain Gehrig. And one of them, von Ribbentrop, said before he hung, I regret I am not able to demonstrate it by a change of life. Well, that's indicative, I think, of a genuine change of life. Once as a curate, I was visiting a church member in hospital, and when I walked through the old 19 Gale wards where they have 14 beds that side and 14 beds that side, as I was walking along to the bed where the particular church member was, I heard this voice from a little dumpy chap saying, Oh, Your Eminence, Your Eminence, come and pray with me, Your Eminence. Well, I, I was quite flattered because... Being an Anglican curate, I was, you know, at the bottom of the food chain. Um, I was a very raw young cleric. Well, of course, to be called an eminence, that's in the Catholic Church, they're cardinals, you know, they are kind of like one down from the Pope. Mind you, I wouldn't want the sacrifice that's required to be the Pope or a cardinal. But, um, yeah, the, the smart got that. Um... <laughs> Anyway, I, I went over to see him, and um, he didn't want to be there, though he was seriously ill. In fact, he did know that he was terminally ill. But he wanted to offload something that was on his conscience, because he'd wanted to kill his brother-in-law. And he was the sort of bloke you could believe he'd do it, really. He was that kind of guy, really. And uh, he wanted to kill his brother-in-law for doing the dirty on him in some way. And we spoke about death and what would happen afterwards. And a week later, he was a changed man. No longer full of hate and a potential murderer, but he had forgiven his brother-in-law and he himself was at peace with God, which was just as well because he died shortly afterwards. Now this second criminal could demonst couldn't demonstrate it either. He only had hours to live, but he makes a number of right responses which model how we should respond to Christ's death on the cross for us. He turned, he repented, that means about turn. He feared God, he knew that he was uh, 
under the sentence of death and he was about to meet his maker and judge. Had he knew the punishment that he was receiving was just. He was getting what he deserved. And then he recognises that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Had he recognised that Jesus was the king, the rightful ruler, who will one day return with his rule for all to see and submit to. And he wants Jesus to remember him. He asks Jesus for a place in that kingdom when it comes. He wants to be in the kingdom with the king, not outside of it. And what's Jesus' response? Does he say, yes, when I return to this earth on the last day, you'll join me in a new heaven and a new earth? Well, he could have done, but the guy would still be waiting. No, he goes better than that. This guy won't have to wait in some kind of comatose state between the moment he dies until the very end of time when Christ comes back and then is awakened. No. He's, Jesus says to him, no, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, their bodies will be put in their graves, but the essential them will be together in paradise. Eternal life is life with Jesus. Paradise is a Persian word. It's borrowed from the Persians to express, in this case, this intermediate state, but it's also used to express the Garden of Eden. And, in fact, if you like, paradise lost there will become paradise regained at the end of time when there is a, a perfect new heaven and a new earth together. And this Persian word was borrowed to denote, um, in Persian it, it, was, um, it was a walled garden uh, around a very fertile and fruitful oasis, which in its turn outside the walled garden would have been arid desert. It was a great word to borrow if you wanted to convey something of uh, the idyllic state in the Garden of Eden, the idyllic state in uh, the paradise that's regained at the end of time, and it's an ideal world, a word to be used of how we are safe and secure with Jesus in the interval. So, how might we benefit from uh, looking at this encounter between this criminal and Jesus? Well, three things I'd suggest. First of all, don't postpone your evaluation of Jesus. We all tend to think we're immortal most of the time. That's our default position, even though, of course, we know we're all going to die. We like to kind of freeze it out, and we also like to procrastinate. We like to postpone difficult decisions. But without sounding too melodramatic, we might not have another day. In every decade of my life since I was at secondary school, I have had someone from my peer group die. I can think of two when I was actually at school. One knocked off his bike, and the other one, playing hockey, keeled over, dead. No knowledge that he had some congenital heart defect. 
and in the decades subsequent, road accidents, suicides, cancer, heart attack. You see, there may not be time to decide. It's right to procrastinate if you want to kind of further investigate, you know, the foundations of the faith. To examine, for example, the evidence for the resurrection. But it's wrong to kind of park deciding about Christ and come back to it, you think, years later. You might not be in a position to do so. Secondly, to understand how the cross works, because realising that because Jesus opted to save us, that he couldn't that first Friday save himself, helps us understand how the cross works. And that gives us assurance and that we know that we're safe with Christ for all eternity. And then thirdly, we can die well. And if you're not sure about being kind of ready to meet your maker, following the example of this uh, thief on the cross is a help. Simply admit that death in all its forms, physical, spiritual and eternal, are just penalties for our sins. Recognise the authority of Jesus, that he is the one who both enables by his death and grants by his authority entry into the kingdom of heaven. And do that and we face our death and the day of judgment knowing that when we are in the dock there will be an immediate acquittal. Our sin will have been dealt with, there will be no charges to face. Jesus has done it for us. And the verdict will be, welcome to paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognise that this can sound like heavy, serious stuff, but it is the core of the Christian faith and it's the, uh, the issue that we all have to face, our mortality, and our mortality makes us think about our relationship with you and our need to die at peace with you. And we pray that we might understand how Jesus' death on the cross enables God to forgive justly our wrongdoing, our ignoring of him and all the things we do wrong as a consequence of that. And we pray that we might be wise enough to seize the offer of forgiveness that he makes.